0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Years of Lead pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross. For today's episode, I wanted to switch things up a bit with an interview from a scholar and dear friend of mine, Kevin Van Meter, a guy who's gone from life as an activist punk kid to factory worker to academic to labor union organizer to all of those things and has forgotten more about the international labor movement than I'll ever learn. He's a real font of knowledge on the subject of transnational roots of Italian workerism, and autonomism, and has an essay to be published soon called Searching for the American Worker, where he traces those roots from the 1930s with the writings of C.L.R. James through the 40s and 50s with the establishment of socialism or barbarism in France and winding up in the foundational workerist journals discussing the Turin auto industry and the petrochemical industry of Veneto. So I interviewed him about this intellectual genealogy coming from intellectuals and workers in the post-war era, so that we can all zoom out and get some perspective on the fact that the struggle in Italy wasn't an isolated one. 1977 wasn't a year that struck only Italy, but connected struggles throughout the world, in space and time. Dr. Van Meter's next book, called Reading Struggles, is due out, hopefully, as soon as possible. I really enjoyed his last book, Gorillas of Desire, and, of course, his first book, The Uses of a Whirlwind. So without further ado, here's the interview. Thanks for listening. All right. All right. Okay. And I'll do uh, the introduction thing in a different thing because I always feel like an idiot when I'm like, we're here, the Years of Lead Pod <laughs> featuring, featuring your host, featuring, featuring. Alexander Reed Roth and Dr. Kevin Van Meter.
1: You're a fucking doctor too, man. But you're a doctor of real things. I'm doctor of geography, whatever that means. No, you're I am a... too. I'm geography yeah. too.
0: Yeah, I'm but you're the geography of no, no. water.
1: I'm a geography of nonsense.
0: I'm <laughs> I'm I'm Earth, wind, and fire. That's my it's not a it's a it's a program uh called Earth Environment Society that is a convergence of geography, geology, and uh, environmental management and science uh, so earth wind and fire
1: earth, earth wind and fire yeah. it's better than the like well i also function in a dialectical triad of uh, <laughs> deep received and lived space which because no one read lefebvre after it was republished in what 1995 96 or something um i can sound like an expert when i'm really just ripping off a much more intelligent human being
0: I read I read Lefebvre after nineteen ninety five. I read a uh, uh, critique of, of Everyday Life, Volume Two, at the uh, uh, instruction of God damn it, what's his name? He wrote Ordinary Poverty.
1: Oh, I don't know who that is. Uh, he was
0: he was he did a radio show with Stanley Aronowitz.
1: Peter? Who? No, it's not Peter. That's funny. I don't
0: think it's Peter. He he taught at St. John's.
1: Oh my God. He's a friend of my aunt's. I know who you're talking about. Labor guy.
0: Yeah. 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 DeFazio. Yeah. Bill yeah. DeFazio. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He was like, he was like, you should really read, you know, Lefebvre. Uh, this was after he he goes, I don't like you. You're smug. <laughs>
1: what do you thought lefebvre would cheer you with that no <laughs> it, it works let's be honest
0: <laughs> bill defazio was was a real dude he was he was pretty badass and it really surprised me because i had him in a class of reading marks right so we would just go read read capital line by line and it was with uh the dude who did the documentary giuliani time he was also one of the people who was in that class okay. um yeah. It was only like seven or eight of us. So it was a really cool like seminar and, uh, and yeah, uh, one of the auxiliary books that he recommended, you know, was Lefebvre. I think probably I said something off the cuff about the situationists and he was like, Oh no, you should read Lefebvre.
1: You know, it's funny. Cause I took, um, Oh, that sucks. I'm getting mail delivery issues from my, let me close down all this stuff. Make sure I've got nothing open. That's kind of like you. Um, yeah, it's funny because I I took a the Grand Rist with Stanley. Oh and yeah? It had to be 2000, 2001 maybe. I it was taking place at the oh. Brecht Forum in New York City. I was coming. That's where I
0: did the the yeah. class with DeFazio. Of course it yeah. is. Yeah. On on Bank and Bethune on the West Side mm-hmm. Highway. Oh, near the new school? this was right by penn station oh at the older space and the
1: old space i had, i don't know well i must have been at the new space but i don't really remember the new space to tell you the truth i know you're talking about it was like some weird yeah. storefront
0: yeah yeah well no it was it was more like a no. garage front but it was like it was like on the west side the highway it was cool it was like <laughs> in the village um it was a nice neighborhood over near wetlands cool. right like where wetlands used to be uh, I think Wetlands used to be a little. Cl- I mean, that's. I think it used to be a little closer to downtown. Hmm. Um. But uh, yeah, I I I was there after Wetlands. I was there the year after the Wetlands uh space shut down and became a nomadic collective.
1: <laughs> you know that I work with Spencer to put all their stuff together and send it to the Labity.
0: No, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I don't know how I got involved in that, but that like experience means that I've been able ever since to work with, um, just grabbing books for our conversation, uh, with various archives. So I just spoke to an individual who is looking to archive all the STO materials with Bring the Ruckus and a Mm -hmm. few other, Joe um, Olson's materials. uh, And uh, my suggestion was Tenement Library because Some of the, like Don Hatterquist and others were CP and Don's father was CP. So you have a lineage of that material. The CP archives are already at Tannement. Deposit it there and then continue with STO, which -hmm. would make sense. Mm -hmm. Even even those STOs like Chicago heavy, Mm -hmm. there really isn't a proper archive there. Wayne State really has to have like Detroit, 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 right? Mm So, Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. then i don't know why james is at columbia that's annoying but at least it's only a train ride uptown from from Lavin, yeah.
0: from uh, i'm sorry from academy but yeah well uh be that as it may if anybody's still listening um to the <laughs> podcast this is uh i are
1: not cutting I mean, all that out
0: Shouldn't kevin out. <laughs> 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 no i like that stuff that uh uh yeah so Kevin Van Meter your dissertation's about the dissemination of uh of uh radical literature if i'm not mistaken but you're a uh, you're sort of a, a labor scholar and uh a union rabble-rouser am i getting that correct
1: That is correct it's funny because usually that's what i talk about when i discuss my dissertation uh, even though i don't think i've cracked it since uh I've completed back in in 2020 uh one of the chapters is particularly on the um relationship between inquiry and intervention in social movement publications right the tension that exists
0: mm, mm-hmm. there
1: existed a tension in socialism and barbarism there existed a tension between in, in correspondence between these factors uh, it's interesting because why I was writing that at the same time uh, Steve Wright was writing his um, new book on, on the Italians and identifies a similar tension, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Are we
1: simply inquiring and circulating those inquiries, those first person narratives, the results of surveys, or are we actually politi- politically intervening in these larger processes mm-hmm. and movements that exist? Um mm-hmm you know, the tension of the quote unquote worker's newspaper, right? Mm. And that's true of socialism and barbarism as well as also correspondence and numerous publications uh, thereafter um, is I think a productive tension. And I think when those tensions either uh, dissipated or one of the publications went in one direction or another, it lost those complexities and it lost that tension which actually was highly productive for the folks involved, right? Like mm. so, with Johnson Forrest's tendency and correspondence and facing reality thereafter in the various groups in France, Italy and around the world that have uh, either have similar parentage or similar political conclusions. There's a sector of these advanced workers, right? Like Jimmy Boggs is probably the the best example of that. and then you have quote unquote intellectuals like Grace Lee Boggs, who had gone to Britmore College and studied Hegel and written about various philosophical questions and kind of then entered into social movement dynamics and the like. Uh, and I think what's immensely productive about their history, right, as Steve Ward talks about in, in Love and Struggle, but also is present in all of these is the attempt to uh, balance those forces and utilize those forces to examine either contemporary relations of production or class struggle or the circulation of struggles and the like. And, um, I wanted to focus on that because I couldn't come to the conclusion, at least in 2018, 2019, 2020 for myself of why I found left publications currently insufficient. Right. I've made this mm-hmm. terrible quip to you before that most left publications out there on the landscape are the, the you know, the the daily worker of a non-existent party. And I prefer <laughs> them to have a party because then they have a party line and you can identify a very clear party yeah. what they're producing. But in fact, they have a party line. They're just not either willing or able to acknowledge such a thing. Um, and I think the clarity of a party line means that I can disagree with said party line or I can show where right. it emerged from and its challenges and the like. Yes. Now we're dealing with all the, the ramifications of the daily worker without the party in order to, you know, criticize its its formation, its, you know, function and the like. So I was trying to think about what was missing from these contemporary publications. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of labor notes. I read labor notes every time the issue arrives on my doorstep. I read all the bulletins as someone who's engaged in labor organizing on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it talks about and circulates struggles, certainly, right? Identifies X group of workers organized and then, you know, ran an election campaign, bargained their first contract, went on strike,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you
1: know, resolution, et cetera, et cetera. What none of those talked about, which is one of the things I was digging for in this investigation between, um, you know, and this tension between inquiry and intervention uh, was what happened prior to the organizing, right? Like, do mm. read any piece that's been published on Starbucks worker organizing the section or even like ink spilled on what the shop looked like prior to that Is very very thin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So all we're circulating is usually accounts of union organizing drives and the like that won, or were successful, or gained something for the workers, or you know historically disastrously lost, right? Because you don't see a lot of that in the contemporary press that are you know focused on various contemporary losses, unless it's like clearly you know you know, a union corruption story or that the campaign strategy failed or like in Bessemer, Alabama, you wanted to have a public campaign but didn't have the the support of the workers on the floor, right. right? Who's examining that? Who's thinking about those things as our, you know, our, those at least in the autonomous tradition and the like who since the 1930s and 1940s have been asking these questions, right? So in digging into that, I like started to pull on a thread and then I, came across the Hastings King book on um, socialism and barbarism, looking for the proletariat, which mm. identifies that. And I kind of retooled that tension that he was looking at, as I thought it applied more to the tradition from Johnson Forrest to correspondence to facing reality. Of course, you know, uh, translating into into french and also they were coming to some conclusions about the trotsky movement at the same time and then very often things were translated from english to french and then french to italian not directly from english into italian and those circulated right it, clearly there's something to be said about those those movements and those formations and those Uh, political ideas that they were developing prior to the 1968-1969 rebellions in France and Italy, right? There's something Mm -hmm. substantive there that I think is missing from contemporary movements, and if you follow Mm -hmm. that thread through to Wages for Housework and Zero Work and Midnight Notes and Process World, you you almost see a similar Uh tension, sometimes not present in the publication itself, but actually, in fact, the failure of zero work as a political intervention and success in some ways of been, I notes, right? Like is part of that tension or process world is a good way of kind of resolving that in this like incredible zine format. So that's really what mm. I was looking at in that chapter. Eventually that piece will be finalized and circulated. Um, but then of course, uh, Steve Wright produced his the way of the printing word and yeah. now you go back and reconsider and make sure that I'm, Uh, bringing forth some of the arguments and new evidence, at least in English that he provides into my arguments, especially around Italy and and of course France as well,
0: which they were missing. Well, I think that like all of that stuff really resonates on the level of uh, uh, the transition between uh, workerism and autonomia in Italy, right? Because Mm -hmm. particularly when you track Negri's sort of career uh, Tony Negri begins uh, around the journals like uh, um, Place Operaio, Quaderni Rossi, Quaderni you know, Piacentini, the classic workerist um, journals, and then skips over after the sort of uh, emergence of Autonomia in the Veneto and in Milan uh, to this journal Rosso, which is fully it it wants to be the journal inside the movement Mm -hmm. right and that's a very different from we're going to see we're going to take the pulse of the working class and make sure that we can cater what might be the beginnings of a new party to the class right and uh what he does with rosso is instead just sort of say we are in you know we're not like the vanguard outside the movement anymore we Mm -hmm. are part of the movement and we're sort of he doesn't want to necessarily say we're shaping and molding the movement. He wants to say we are representing, we're articulating the movement. And every article, uh, they're all sort of slammed together, some t- kind of yelling at each other, um, mm-hmm. representing different subjectivities, students, workers, uh, homeless, unemployed, women, gay liberation, all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. in one sort of loud, funny, raucous journal that is creating the if you will party platform uh without a party uh every issue you know and so it's a ad hoc immediate like intravenous you know uh movement uh for lack of a better word uh so in that you do you lose a certain degree of articulation by saying by saying and I'm using articulation, I think, right now, you know, in the Laclauian sense, right, of the new social movements, because you see this a lot in the women's movement that comes to effectively define the new social movement in a sense, um, that articulation becomes and representation becomes so important, clarity becomes mm-hmm. so important, and the tyranny of structurelessness and all of that stuff becomes an oppressive force within uh, in ostensibly anti-oppression discourse or really an anti-authoritarian discourse um and so yeah in that sort of jumble almost a stream of different consciousnesses that you get from Rosso uh you also like you're saying you you kind of you lose a little bit of power maybe mm-hmm.
1: I don't know I think it's interesting that you know the transition you're talking about there that takes place in, the, in between the 60s and the 70s post um the hot autumn, of course, and 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 post May sixty eight, <clears throat> is yes, there is an emergence of new social forces, which is important to identify, uh, and certainly those carry through until the eighties and nineties, and then of course have different kind of articulations in in the global north and various you know time periods thereafter. But I think the focus away from the class toward the movements itself. Made sense at the time because they were following the struggles themselves. They're reading the struggles. They're seeing how they're circulating uh, within Italy, within France, and of course internationally. Um, but there hasn't been a reapproach of the class itself, and that examination of how do working class forces actually encounter work and the regimes of work in their everyday lives, right? Um, right. they come out in other ways which I think is why I've been so drawn to this American worker project so to go back for a sec uh, you know I've been focused for some time on the movements that emerged uh in um in Europe and the United States in the 1940s 1940s and 1950s around auto workers right of which Johnson Forrest had seen Correspondence, socialism barbarism the Italians in Turin were certainly um part of and an important, Um, components of. And as I dug into that, I, you know, and trying to think through some contemporary problems, I turned my attention to this issue of how do movements understand themselves and where do they articulate that? And very often it's in these journal projects. Um, Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate Thing because I'm supposed to be working on this book for AK Press uh, on reading struggles starting in that period and then moving through the 70s 80s uh, till 2005 when Process World concludes and when I say should be working on that every time I I begin to dig into something I pull out a thread <laughs> and to mix my terrible metaphors I hear uh, editor
0: <laughs> <are> <laughs> yeah you know, know. Christian <laughs> Williams right now is screaming. Yes. <laughs> well,
1: you're over there, don't you? Um, whatever other metaphor can I mix in here to make it even more confusing and, and sound like- so you're
0: digging, I'm you're pulling- I'm digging and pulling. Setting yeah, a fire.
1: There are times I am digging, right? I'm looking through the archives. I'm trying to track down materials from the 1940s. I'm looking at correspondence, right? There's certainly digging there. And sometimes there is definitely pulling at a thread and seeing what kind of comes of it and trying to figure out why and how movements- in the past have understood themselves? Like why did they ask these questions which resulted in Johnson, Farris and others leaving the Trotskyist movement and refusing the party formation as a revolutionary force as the proper articulation of revolutionary subjectivity? Um, Why in 1940, 1950 through 1953, and how really were they asking questions which resulted in the production of The American Worker and A Woman's Place, and Artie cuts out and in heart, thinking about the struggles of, quote-unquote, uneducated autoworkers, mm-hmm. uh, producing some of the first material on the question of the, you know, the, quote-unquote, like, woman question, a housewife question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why did they turn to a truant student who was involved in various uh, student strike activities in New York City, in the Forties and fifties to write a pamphlet from their perspective, right? So, what you see there is the developing of a working class perspective within Marxism. Um, I don't think they would have articulated it as such at the time, right? At least from from my findings, my reading of that material, uh, I wouldn't put that on them. That certainly comes later, but these figures are trying to figure out, in the context of the post World War II era in the United States and then in Europe, how the class struggle is unfolding? Where is their role? How do they inquire into the struggles that exist in the factory and in the larger society? And where do they intervene? And the conclusion they come to is that there are social forces that are developing in the factory of working class subjectivity, activity working class knowledge that are key to circulate. And that's the American worker pamphlet. And they consider that it's important to think about the role of um, the reproduction of labor power, right? A, a phraseology that comes after the fact, where they have identified it in the forties and fifties with Selma James and other figures around, um, the Johnson Forest tendency and correspondence producing a woman's place, same deal with already cuts out. I mean, these are things that, uh, are identifying social forces that then, uh, 10, 15 years after that time period really come to the fore of these social movements, right? So let's think about the Treaty of Detroit. Let's think about the post-World War II era. Uh, The white male factory worker is seen as the revolutionary vanguard. They're a key point of production in the automotive sector in the United States and Europe. And that's where many of the socialist communists and other party formations seek to intervene. At the same time, within those environments, you're seeing the revolt of uh, men of color uh, who are leaving Southern Italy or Sicily or leaving the South of the United States and traveling North in order to uh, enter those industries and then new social conflicts develop, right? Because they're excluded from that productivity deal. So I think there's some really interesting things uh, in these traditions that I've carried through in my own work as an organizer. Um, how do we understand working class self-activity, the circulation of struggles and the emerging struggles that are taking place? Um, You know, one of the the recent adages is that no one saw the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movements erupting uh, when they did. But in hindsight, looking at 40 years of black liberation struggle mm. and work around abolition that allow those movements to articulate themselves in different ways, <laughs> in hindsight, maybe it's not so surprising that they emerge. In the same way, maybe it's not so surprising that in the 60s and 70s, these other social forces and social movements emerge because our comrades were identifying them in the 40s and 50s. And just kind of as an aside for a moment, because, um, the more I dig into this, the the more I think about Jimmy Boggs, mm-hmm. who is right, you know, born in 1919, I believe he heads north in 1937. Um, you know, those who know Grace Lee Boggs and, and the work mm-hmm. of the, the two of them in the 70s, 80s, and of course, her, her work up until a few years ago when she passed, um, they married, I believe, 1953, right? So, um they have a very, very interesting, engaging relationship. Jimmy is a very interesting relationship as a worker intellectual. He's identifying in the 1950s, decades beforehand, how automation, how these various uh, you know processes in the factory, uh, how these various social conflicts were going to result in deindustrialization, right? Like. There's never a one to one prediction you know, I mean, these, these social forces are always too complex, but he's seeing things unfold because of his reading of Marx, because of his training Mm -hmm. in the Hegelian dialectic, Mm -hmm. because of his, how attuned he was to what in fact was happening on the ground that he's able to make predictions, which in fact came true. So that's true of of these figures all along. And that's my interest Mm -hmm. in this autonomous tradition that begins with C.L.R. James and the publishing of the Black Jacobins in 1938. And of course, then his visit to the United States and then Mexico to go debate the national question and the like with Trotsky in 1939. Um, Because they are so attuned to the actual existing conditions of capitalism, not the abstract ideal that you find in Capital, Volume One through Three, but the actual existing conditions on the ground,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which their understanding is furthered by these, you know, theoretical, philosophical uh, materials and texts and ideas. Um, they are able to identify social forces and the like that then develop thereafter. Right, so. The new enclosures published by Midnight Ed's Collective 1992 are talking mm-hmm. about how permanent accumulation continues and is a contemporary uh, facet of global capitalism. It's not something that happened uh, historically in the witch hunts and the enclosure in the commons. That's actually an ongoing process. Um, in my reading of capital, I think they were correct. And I think mm-hmm. um, their identif- identification of those social forces in 1992 is two years before the Zapatistas emerged, right? Mm-hmm. It's years before the MST like was fairly articulated in Brazil. Um, there were French peasant struggles, there were an American farmworker struggles of that type in, in those years that they were identifying that those come after, right? Because of course, there's always an ebb and flow in these, in various struggles and social forces. So the mm-hmm. fact that the Johnson Forest tendency and correspondence can identify housework, lack liberation, Uh, self-activity of workers against work right Mm -hmm. Um, the importance of youth struggles from the perspective of youth themselves in the 40s and 50s is a like in the dna of these traditions Mm. to the point where um, process world launches in the late 70s and early 80s talking about temporary office work which has become a you know, constituent component of contemporary global capitalism and a particularly terrible job as both of us have experienced. Right. So (laughs) I think Mm. what's interesting about the kind of digging I've done and the pulling of threads that I've been trying to do over the last few years is it always then throws me deeper into the material. So I had returned about this time last year to reading everything I could about James and Trotsky in Mexico. Right. Certainly, two interesting historical figures confronting each other uh, in a debate in 1939. Um, you know, Trotsky, of course, would be murdered uh, shortly thereafter. James would uh, return to the United States. Trotsky would try to undermine his attempt to launch a bureau of Trotskyists to counter the self determination policies and black belt strategy of the Communist Party and the Comintern. Um, so, certainly, like, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, developments there. Uh, and as I'm digging into that, one weekend I turned to the American Worker pamphlet and I reread the American Worker pamphlet. And because I had this terrible nagging need to understand how um, struggles are articulating themselves and emerging in the present and what I can do to aid those struggles, um, I dug further and further and further into the American Worker and thought, do we need an American Worker for? Showbox workers, for Amazon Mm -hmm. workers, for Mm -hmm. gig workers, for those in the tech industry, for social services. I mean, both of us currently live in Portland, Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest. There is an emergence of uh, restaurant workers and fast food worker struggles here, right? We've seen Mm -hmm. an Orderville Workers Union the last um, five, 10 years. Uh, These are struggles that I want to aid and, and see. Uh, you know, continue to develop. And the American worker understood at that time in 1947, how at least the Linden, New Jersey General Motors plant operated as it produced automobiles for General Motors uh, in the post-World War II era, right? It gets translated two years later and this goes to some of the things we had talked about that we wanted to make sure to address today. Uh, Raya Escava and Grace Lee Boggs are traveling during this time in the mid 1940s. Um, and then thereafter, after the pamphlet is published to France and meeting with Cornelius Castoraitis and Claude Lafort and- Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, the socialism and, and Barbary guys, yeah.
1: Right, and it's interesting to note that, you know, those who pay attention to socialism and barbarism of the Italian workers thereafter Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, should not forget that the American worker is the first five, six issues, right? So the first part Mm. of the American worker pamphlet for those who are not familiar is written by uh, this uh, American auto worker who worked in Linden, New Jersey, the GM plant by the name of Phil Singer. His party name was Paul Romano. That's what the pamphlet was published under. He wrote part one, Life in the Factory. And part two is written by Stone, which is the pen name of Grace Lee Boggs. Um, and that is more philosophical reflection on the first part. Socialism and Barbarism translates and the first uh, issue uh, of Social Barbarism appears in the world in 1939 with the American worker being serialized all the way through the, I think five, six uh, were a double issue. And then um, Grace Lee Boggs is in the seventh and eighth issue, her section appears. So the first eight issues of socialism and barbarism is the American worker, right? Mm -hmm. And then of course the Italians, uh, you know, who are Mm -hmm. then, Thinking about the Trotskyist movement and thinking about auto worker struggles and are thinking about the circulation of struggles and, and great migration taking place from the south to the north. There, turn to the the French, and mm-hmm. discover the American worker. Right, they're thinking through their own political realities and are turning to their comrades and colleagues, um, who are a little bit more advanced because they're producing a publication. Right, and they're they're thinking about these questions in France, and they translated in 1954. And then, of course, that pavlet circulates in, in Italian uh, in those uh, early mid-years of the 1950s through to the 1960s, and assists those who are undergoing sociological examinations of the factory to turn to additional questions they might not have asked, and also turn to additional methods. Um, certainly, this is not a catalyst that developed, you know, the American worker doesn't Circulate with Grace and riot to France, and then uh, you know, socialism and barbarism developed. Or this doesn't get translated from the French into the Italian, in nineteen fifty-four, and then the Italian workers start asking questions they wouldn't otherwise. Right? This allows folks to think about uh, the confluence of forces in which they're facing. Think about the exact, exact uh, you know, actually existing struggles on the ground. And very often, it allows us to think those through to see the work that other people are doing in similar fields or environments, right? Mm. Uh, And I think it had a major effect on on, uh, the the French and Italians. Um, Mm. What's interesting, of course, is those in France and those in Italy thereafter are so focused on the existing struggles and the current struggles that are not rereading the American worker in the later 60s and 70s in Italy or France, to my understanding. Certainly what begins with Raya and Grace, and then of course James, who's traveling uh, from Europe to the United States and then is exiled um, you know at various points of his life back to Europe, back to London from the United States. Um, so with those militants, they carry these ideas. They carry these materials with. Yeah. them, But is in fact, I suspect, an earlier uh, circulation. So we know in the 1920s and the 1930s that Fiat and the various automakers in 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 Germany and France are traveling to Detroit to see how Ford is unfolding this new assembly line, right, and how Taylorism is being applied. Yeah. So we know that Gramsci is the head of the Italian Communist Party in the in the nineteen twenties. Is quite attuned to the movements of uh, these bureaucrats uh, and um, and capitalists. Aha! There you go.
0: There he is. Adams just right here. Yeah.
1: Yep. Mine's always uh, within, you know,
0: arm's reach as well. Yeah, exactly. It's just like right here. Oh man. Um, yep, the uh, the one uh, that was edited by um, by uh, South Bend Mayor Buttigieg. Yeah, yep, his dad, uh, his dad, yeah. <laughs> his dad. <laughs>
1: Which is certainly an improvement upon the you know, Stalinist version that came out in what the 1950s, 1970s. God, I can't remember the uh, the prison notebooks, the internationalist version. Which, interesting enough, right? Like, I think what's also what is available in different languages and what is available for militants to utilize, to try to understand their current environments is really important. So I want to put a little kind of pin in, um, in Marx's economic philosophical manuscripts of 1844 and its translation of 47 and its influence on the American worker and thereafter. So let's Mm -hmm. put a pin in that for a moment. But what's interesting is Celia Federici's master's thesis looked at, at, Uh, and then her dissertation looked at Gramsci. So Mm. she's writing this in the late 60s, early 70s. Clearly somebody who's uh, interested in and well-versed in working-class self-activity and um, the demand for wages of housework to refuse housework, right? So she criticizes Gramsci during those years because all she had access to were the prison notebooks that were resented in Italy, in Italian, of course, Mm. by the Italian communist party to their fallen martyr. Mm. And then of course the new international version published in the United States. The two things that are missing from the Italian, which I don't read, but uh, it's been reported to me and certainly missing from the English version is that focus on the women question and housework and the role of women Mm. in the factory Mm. and working class self-activity. One of the things the Budajig version shows quite well is how interested Gramsci was in both of those questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, being that the full richness of Gramsci's thought and writing in the prison notebooks was not available to Italian militants, they hated Gramsci until recently, right? Ah. Because Gramsci is the figurehead of the PCI, which is not you know uh interested in and in actually involved in suppressing these workers movements in the 60s and 70s in Italy mm-hmm. uh, and then of course like Althusser is the lead intellectual um in in France is calling for the suppression of the movements of 68 right the uh, French communist party is challenging these movements because mm-hmm. the revolutionary time has not been properly identified by their intellectuals we you know the workers and peasants and students are already in the streets and and running far, far ahead of the uh, intellectuals in the party themselves. Right. What's really interesting is that our access to some of these materials means that our criticism of Gramsci in the 1670s is insufficient and actually wrong Hmm. uh, because we didn't have access to that material. Now, Hmm. I kind of want to return to 1947 and the American worker. It's a really productive period for the Johnson forest and see, right. They've left the mm-hmm. workers party. They're doing a weekly bulletin circulating various, you know, ideas and reflections about class struggle, about the black liberation movements, about youth, about women, about, you know, um, interestingly enough, not really addressing subsequently world war ii and the diaspora of mm. uh of of romany and jewish people after the war so like it, it's odd on which clearly apparent struggles and, and issues they ignore but in 1947 during this interim period between uh their quote-unquote period of being free from any kind of party formation they are translating, um, or at least Grace Lee Boggs is translating the 1844 manuscripts of mm-hmm. March, where he identifies and talks about estrangement or alienation.
0: Right, right.
1: They're writing invading socialist society, drawing on a equipped by Engels, right? They're mm-hmm. trying to identify that social society that's emerging in the everyday lives and experiences and struggles of working class people.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: already there in 47. Interesting enough when Grace writes her Reconstruction of Society section for The American Worker in 1947, she has just concluded that translation. So you're seeing an addition to their kind of theoretical toolkit or their conceptual apparatus. And that is alienation in all four of its you know, articulations by Marx. It's in the pamphlet. It's woven into Paul Romano's section. It's woven into mm. her Mm -hmm. Uh, she cites of course that translation that she has just produced but unlike those who turn to you know speak to Gramsci again the concept of hegemony later um, or those who turn to alienation later as the situationists do as folks Mm -hmm. here in the united states do it doesn't become the key to unlock everything right our Mm -hmm. understanding uh where I would say the left thereafter (laughs) takes the concept of alienation and it's either the sole or the primary way of understanding class struggle. It's not then reincorporated into their concepts to improve their conceptual apparatus, to understand how, you know, capitalism is dialectically unfolding as a reaction to class struggle. And then of course, asking questions about working class self-activity. So to me, it's really interesting to see these figures translating marks on alienation and having it improve their conceptual toolkit, their conceptual apparatus and not dominating it, right? As the new shiny object.
0: Sure, 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 yeah.
1: Maybe some of that is the post 68 use, uh, but in the pamphlet itself, in the American worker, they are intimately interested in the informal work groups to think about, stand weird nonsense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that exists in the factory. They're thinking about the relationship between black and white workers. They're thinking about that strata of the working class. Mm-hmm. They're thinking about the role of women in the factory in the, in the areas of which they've been allowed, quote unquote, to, to function in the factory. Um, they're thinking about the way that struggles are circulating and articulating themselves outside and against the union and the party. Thereafter, unfortunately, the left very often kind of, you know, grabs on to that ultra-left position and says, well, you know, we need to refuse the party, we need to refuse the union, et cetera, et cetera. Those arguments are happening in 1947. So Mm -hmm. let's go through 1947, uh, uh, you know, with a little bit more detail. Uh, The johnson Forest tendency leaves the Workers' Party. They're in this interim period. They're producing this bulletin. This bulletin is being circulated to various militants and and groups and circles around the United States in LA, Philadelphia, New York, Detroit. And then the quote unquote advanced workers and intellectuals in the Johnson Forest tendency are taking those bulletins, they're reading them, they're discussing them, they're discussing those with those circle, they're discussing those with those they work with and the like. Mm -hmm. They're talking about the invading socialist society which only emerges out of working class self activity they're talking about alienation, right? There's a real richness to that time period.
0: Hmm.
1: And in my, in, I, I did not make this discovery, uh, a, a young scholar by the name of Cole Nelson who wrote a master's thesis about it, uh, wrote about it first. He, he beat me to the punch, um, uh, but, uh, and, and did some fantastic work on it. So I want to acknowledge that. I was looking through the internal bulletins of the Johnson Forest Tendency. Not page churners. <laughs> uh, important. But that's where the excerpts of the American Worker pamphlet first appeared.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: the introduction that Marty Gleyberin wrote in 1972. And then, of course, in the original pamphlet and in the original section by Paul Romano, he talks about this, um, uh, you know he circulated drafts of the pamphlet to, to get other workers' opinions. Where did that circulate? Well, that circulated in the bulletin, right? Mm. The versions that appear in the bulletin, the versions that appear in the final pamphlet are a little different. So I'm going through the bulletin saying, okay, so if this circulated, what did it look like? And about halfway through um, in one of the bulletins is an advert that says, coming soon, the American worker on the press now, right? And it doesn't <laughs> say who wrote it? right mm-hmm. doesn't even give a description really of the pamphlet except for like you know auto workers philosophy right like very you know keywords as we would say now mm. um, but there is an excerpt by uh from romano's section there's an excerpt from Ria Stoner Grace Lee Boggs's section but interesting enough phil singer who's the auto worker who kept a diary at the behest of uh, CLR James and then wrote the pamphlet, or is one of the authors of the pamphlet, collaborated in all likelihood with Grace and Marty Glaverman in writing the pamphlet. Um, provides this excerpt, but he doesn't call himself Phil Singer, his actual name, or Paul Romano, his pen name, as a tribute to the pamphlet. He calls himself Phil Romano, so kind of a mix of the two. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: In the final Uh, edition number 12, bulletin number 12, he writes a letter on the trade union question criticizing the intellectuals, and in this case particularly intellectuals based in Philly about the trade union question, who want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? The American worker identifies all the struggles that are going on against and beyond the union. Because unions themselves become bureaucratic apparatuses to impose the contract, in a particular regime of work, on the workers, right? And then at that time, they call them committeemen, or stewards would grieve if there's a violation of the contract. But especially at this time, there are folks who want to refuse that work, want increased control over that work. the contracts in the post-World War II era and ever since have already given over power of management uh, to the prerogative of managers and the boss,
0: right? right?
1: That's not the struggle that these workers and these advanced intellectual uh, workers and intellectuals are engaged in. They want to seize the means of production. They want full control over the factories to run them uh, Mm -hmm. as they see fit. Um, That can't be done in the compromise that's made in the, you know, uh, you know, war strike boards, right, and the like that Marty Gleyberman then talks about the refusal of in wartime strikes. So, uh you know, they are, they are identifying these things in the factory. Then various forces within Johnson-Farza and thereafter kind of a, throw the union out, <laughs> right? It, it's a, you know, out of date, as they do the party, it's an out of date Structure. I think they're a right hmm. to do that with the party form itself. It clearly played itself out. 1968 confirms that. Um, but they do the same to the union. And that debate really starts in in 47. Well, do we need different kinds of organizations in order to refuse work and go beyond capitalism? The scenes the means of production, to decide what we'll produce, where we'll produce it, how we'll produce it. Right.
0: Um,
1: and then comes that kind of ultra left position that you're refusing the union. What Phil Romano says in the final internal bulletin the Johnson forest entity before the pamphlet, it really is circulating and appears in the world is actually we're refusing the union because of it's bureaucratic processes, it's imposition of work, it's, um, you know, problematic politics, it's bureaucratic nature but the contract protects us, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: trade union question is not trade unions or not. It's how to improve those trade unions right. and default forms beyond them that are in fact going to refuse work and abolish capitalism and not be tied into war labor boards, right? I think I called them war strike boards before, my apologies, but war labor boards and the like. I think that's really, really key that these figures are also not... Um, you know, uh, dealing with a conflict between workers, intellectuals, in these pamphlets and in the organizations, they're not just dealing with a conflict between should we inquire into struggles and circulate those inquiries, or should we intervene in struggles philosophically and politically? Mm. Uh, do we only articulate the voices of workers in a workers' newspaper, or do we? you know, uh, write philosophical treaties and the like, as many of the Italians did. And then, of course, their American counterparts did in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, it's, in fact, that tension that's important. The that mm. tension constantly makes us re-question. Mm-hmm. Are you, you know, obsessed with a particular philosophical position like or concept like alienation or hegemony?
0: Yeah.
1: Or are we reading the struggles that they emerge and using our concepts to understand those struggles and identify things of which we hadn't identified previously, like the importance of the reproduction of labor power. But I think I probably went too far afield, and you might want to return to some of the themes we've already talked about or.
0: No, afield. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's why actually it's funny because, um, you know, with, with Lota Continua, you always have this sort of. Uh, Uh, conflict between the intellectuals and the and the militants to a degree and it's partly as a result of that that you end up with a lot of the militants particularly from the area of Sesto San Giovanni splitting off and creating Senza Tregua along with some of the old Potero Operaio guys like uh, I guess he wasn't old but uh, (laughs) Oreste Scalzone and then Scalzone gets kicked out of Sense because they consider him an intellectual so you know you constantly have this this thing where you have people who are factory militants and they have high profiles in the factory councils and stuff like that they're uh action oriented and they're saying why are you saying all this stuff that you know we take this to the workers and they're like what the fuck is this you know what i mean you sure. know, if you want to write for a worker's journal, then write w- about workers' issues from a perspective that workers can understand and about things that workers care about. And then on the other hand, in Potero Parayo, uh one of the early members of that sort of unit out of uh, Veneto and Bologna is, uh, is uh, Franco Berardi, right, Bifo, um, who is all about alienation you know i mean he calls it something more like estrangement you, you mentioned estrangement and that becomes a sort of a cornerstone of at least the bologna section of autonomia because you have different you know you have the autonomia in rome which is much more oriented actually towards polyclinic workers who are working with nurses and and students in a teaching hospital as well as working with the patients and stuff like that and people in the electricity board and stuff like that you know uh and dealing with real workers' issues and being more apprehensive about engaging in the sort of youth countercultural stuff about alienation and all of that kind of thing. And then you have Negri with Rosso in Milan, um, and they're very in tune with the youth counterculture. That's like one of their main things. Um, So it's interesting to see like how the philosophical, and you mentioned, of course, uh, socialism or barbarism, like uh, Castoriadis using uh, yeah. psycho psychoanalysis and that's that's something i mean so first i wanted to say like there is an ecology idea and ethics an ecology ethics especially when you get to uh uh castoriadis and Marcuse, who are they're not uh too too similar but they're often considered sort of uh i guess pillars of the new left to a degree in that kind of life as an organic whole yeah. uh as opposed to the wage system, which is alienating or estranging, right? And so when you talk about the 1947 uh, johnson Forest tendency, I'm kind of interested, because this is obviously one of the main kind of uh, currents that's feeding into both workerism and then autonomia and kind of for different reasons to some degree. When you talk about their idea of the abolition of capital um, and the idea of institutions that are built sort of developed out of and uh, in parallel to unions, it sort of reminds me of the ideas of the, the CUBs, the committees of the base that uh, early workerists were trying to set up in every factory, which then kind of spawned these councils and these uh, the factory councils and the um, idea of study groups to bring people together, you know, and, and create these kind of ideas of new demands. Um which subsequently the 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 communist party union, the Chejiala, uh created their own workers' councils in all the factories in order to dilute the importance of the grassroots efforts to develop factory councils. And so there was a big question, do we involve ourselves in these, or do we oppose them as puppets of the of the communist party? Um, so, so, you know, the potential of the, of the sort of auxiliary workerists, um, units or whatever within factories is precisely as you said like a refusal of work on principle to a degree like uh, not just factories strikes and occupations where the workers would continue to to run the works while they were on strike or while they were uh, occupying the factory in order to show everybody that you know a communist country would be a functional and fully productive one it would liberate the productive um forces, the the potential productive forces of a communist society. No, 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 no. That's what they were like. When we occupy a factory, we're not doing anything. We're going to break these machines, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because they saw the capitalist system as tied deeply tied to industrialization in general, which is absolutely, I think, historically true. And uh, they, they thought the refusal of work leads to a reproachment with life itself and in a sense, a radical joy. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, so going back to 47 in that context, it seems like what they're building out of is very much the same kind of theoretical basis. And I was wondering, like, when you talk about abolition of capital, are they really going all the way to the refusal of work and abolition of the wage system? Is that kind of where the Johnson Forest tendency is moving towards before they Put out the american worker
1: i would say yes and i think it's also important to note that it's like 30 years after the russian revolution right and i think all of its warts you know it clearly we can identify um those warts prior to them emerging the viral elements within um you know marxism and, and the you know, Bolshevik party that then are going to develop into these problematic forms, right? Um, But I think what's interesting with Johnson Forrest is that we don't want to forget the state capitalism world revolution component. Um, So they'd already seen uh, what state capitalism had looked like, and they'd they'd seen it for 30 years. Um, What is interesting, though, about going back to 1947 and in what they were saying at the time, is we use a lot of shorthand and concepts like the refusal of work, right? Or mm-hmm. reproduction of labor power, housework, you know, thereafter, or, you know, uh, even state capitalism. Mm. Until those kind of phrases are coined. Right, refusal of work, I think the earliest we're going to find is really, it's an Italian phrase, but um, those ideas are being articulated in the United States and France prior to that. So I think, you know, one of the issues is, do we find the refusal of work in the American worker and the work of the Johnson Forest tendency in the mid-late 1940s? Um, right, Tenzi's for founded in 45, they leave the Workers' Party in 47, they return shortly thereafter to the Socialist Workers' Party, they're intimately, you know, involved in, uh, in various worker struggles across the United States, um, they're involved in immense productive intellectual work, right? Like in that year, they write the balance sheet, they write the invading social society, the American worker and the translation of Marx on estrangement, as I've noted. Um, It's immensely productive time for them. But what we don't see is those phrasings or conceptual developments. They're simply identifying Would later would become the refusal of work, right? They're simply identifying the problems with state capitalism before they say the word or words, state capitalism, right? And I think that's what's important about this Mm -hmm. intellectual tradition is because they are reading struggles, to use the title of my forthcoming press title and also the phrase that I stole from uh, Midnight Notes, participant uh, george kofensis um is that they are reading the struggles on the ground right and why are they doing that mm. they're doing that for a number of reasons uh, that they involve uh you know there's, there's the involvement of militants and these quote-unquote advanced workers but it's funny because uh, recently i've been turning my attention to volume two and three of capital to prepare oh, to more and in um the first section, literally chapter one of, nice. uh, of Capital Volume Two. Uh, nice. I think it's actually the first, is it the first section of the first chapter? It is. Marx talks about, and then he's talking about the transformation of money, capital into productive capital, et cetera, et cetera, in order to then. Sure. Down- uh, you know, unleash the forces of production and, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, the, the labor power, least labor power, and then, um, you know, put into process the means of production, which they've purchased. He, you know, talks about and summarizes Capital Volume One. And he says, this is how the matter presents itself from the capitalist side. And then he continues, the worker's side the productive application of his labor power (laughs) excusing the gendered language of the time of course is possibly only when it has been associated with the means of production and as the result of its sale before the sale this labor power exists in a state of separation from the means of production Mm -hmm. from the objective conditions of its application in this state of separation it can be used neither for the production of use values for its possessors, nor for the production of commodities, which he could live from selling. Mm -hmm. As soon as it's associated with the means of production, right? Brought together in production, processed by capital after it's purchased. By being sold in its forms, a component of the productive capital of its buyer, just as much as the means of productions do. Right? Mm -hmm. So like right here, he's talking about from the capitalist side, from the worker's side, from capital's perspective, from, know the worker's perspective and you know knowing that the johnson forest tendency are intimately involved in study groups and the rereading and reading Uh reading and rereading of hegel and marx that what i think the mistake they don't make is reading this first line of capital is so many before and after and this is i think david harvey's great error which you know talking about the autonomous tradition that harry cleaver has corrected and reading how politically and uh mm-hmm. in rupturing the dialectic in his, mm-hmm. his you know 33 lessons etc is the first line of, of capital the wealth of the societies in which the capitalist of production prevails appears and harvey does you know point to appear as an important term here mm-hmm. as an immense collection of commodities the individual commodity appears in its elementary form an investigation therefore begins with analysis of the commodity So what's behind that appearance, right? Um, If in fact, the study of capital through a Marxian lens doesn't go beyond that appearance, doesn't go beyond the abstract ideal. He actually comments in volume three about what he's producing as an abstract ideal, how it should be working. Right. And then, of course, we know that capital cheats all the fucking time in order to get more labor power or, you know, uh, to uh, utilize a new piece of technology to produce more commodities uh, in one particular aspect of the market or in, you know, one particular factory to beat their competition elsewhere in another part of the market in another part of the world. Uses uh, force. Yeah, exactly. But this abstract ideal is then taken as the actual operating of capital on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about Marx is that he's looking at the concrete reality. He's abstracting from it, right? This is his method in order to, you know, understand how it's functioning on a a global scale. Um, And then through that abstraction, you then reread the... Ongoing conditions, in order to further understand those conditions, these categories allow us and help us to do that. And I mm. think Johnson Forrest Tendency is doing that in such a fashion of which they are so productive that they are producing new concepts and new articulations a new understanding of that concrete existence of capital, right? And mm. because they're good dialecticians, and they understand, you know, as Tony Negri said, who you noted earlier, that bourgeois society is dialectical, cannot help but be dialectical. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a paraphrase than a direct quote so that I don't have him within arm's reach.
0: I, yeah, I, I, is that in one of these books? These, uh, the Polity Press uh, um, Ed Embry books? I think it might be in this one Spinoza, Then and Now. I don't remember which book that I, I, I remember reading that phrase.
1: I thought it was in one of the essays and selected writings of Tony Negri, or could be in. You know what's been collected in books for burning, but it's so been- frustrating
0: because all the books are just collections of essays from various points. So it's like lining it all up. There needs to be a, the butajid of of Negri.
1: I I hear Pete, this.
0: I'm- Pete Buttigieg is going to put it together.
1: Yes, well,
0: <laughs> you, you <remember> <laughs> he's fucked up the transportation system and
1: various other things. As well, you know. Poor father rolling around in his grave, but you know, I think next right? That bourgeois society is dialectical and help it be dialectical. I think the mistake then is taking that as a way of uh, understanding how a new society is going to merge, right? That's you know, the challenge after 68, that's the loser's articulation, which of course he's drawing heavily on Mm, uh, mm. Meryl Tranti, right? And Tranti is drawing heavily Mm. on you know, the, his prior Italian comrades, but also what's going on in the United States um, with the League of Revolutionary Black Workers with, Mm. you know, and that's thereafter, of course, I'm skipping around in my chronology and being a very, very poor historian today. But I think, you know, they are in this time period, immensely productive politically, because of these tensions, which I began with, because of these conflicts, but also, we have to remember that there really is a there is a Marxist International among the communist parties and Trotskyist parties, but there also is a you know a dissident or you know heterodoxic Marxist International. In 1954, Raya Du Escave is writing regularly to Socialism and Barbarism. And socialism and barbarism is writing regularly to Anton Panekwek, who at that point is what eighty-four. Oh, I
0: love, yeah, that's the OG right? stuff. That's the old councilism, Dutch councilism from like the nineteen tens and twenties.
1: Exactly right. So like this is being read by, uh, you know, Claude the Ford and and mm-hmm. yeah, the rest of SOUB. Right. So like they're reading the material and they're actually communicating. So uh, Pannekoek whose name I have butchered literally since the first time I read it. Yeah, uh,
0: I used say Panicoke. I don't Pana know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Well, you know, and that's one of, this is why I have not uh, attempted to name any of the Italian uh comrades in their projects on the podcast today because uh, my pronunciations are just god-awful. Um <laughs> Actually, alerting disability. I'm fine when I'm there. I'm terrible when I'm not. Um, But, you know, these uh these comrades in 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 holland communicating with those in in france are reading socialism and barbarism and he says in a letter to uh, uh to Castoritis, i believe back to SOUB, i have to tell you how pleased i am i've been with the articles on the american worker which clarified court now i'm coughing only oh, sorry mm-hmm. again yeah. Edit that part out. All right, I'll edit that part (laughs) out. Happens when you're old and the allergies and the heat we have now in Portland. I have to tell you how pleased I have been with the articles on the American worker, which clarifies considerably the enigmatic problem of this working class without socialism. Right, so like there is this heterodox international. We see, you know, to one of Mm -hmm. your points, one of your questions, the, the circulation of these militants in the 1930s, in the figure of CLR James, right, and traveling from the Caribbean to London, and then throughout mm. the Northern Territories and factory towns, and then back through the United States to Mexico, and then, of course, he sets up shop here in the United States for a number of years until he's, you know, um, you know, put in exile. Um, but there is this constant travel and communication among these figures they're constantly mm-hmm. writing to each other if you're going to take the entire correspondence of the johnson forest group and let's just take the main figures right because there are there are many many other figures there i think deserve attention and we don't have a really substantive book and history of that currently yeah. you know People will talk about Ryan, and Grace and CLR, and then they'll talk about Marty Kleberman. Thereafter, they'll talk about George Rawwick and Facing Reality, and they'll talk about those other figures. But there's a really interesting group of folks beyond that, um, which really have not gotten their due yet. But if you just take the major figures and their correspondence, thousands and thousands of pages, they're literally constantly writing back and forth and you know, working on each other's material. Grace worked on... Um, CLR's book on the um, *Moby Dick, right? Why he was uh, awaiting deportation in Ellis Island. Uh, We know for a fact, the American worker and these various other pamphlets were collaborative projects, right? They're writing back and forth correspondence debating Hegel and Marx all the time. They're in constant contact. Um, They're writing material and ghostwriting for each other. They're improving each other's writing in various ways. And I think that model is really, really key to draw upon for our own current work, right? How can we produce American workers in the present? How can we produce inquiries, investigations to aid contemporary class struggles? I think this tradition has a lot to draw upon for that. But I also think it's really important to note that like we think about the communist international, we think about these various Trotskyist parties um, in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere What we don't think about and i don't think we think about enough is that really starting in the 30s and then uh accelerating in the 40s and 50s these figures are traveling from the united states to europe right grace travels to meet with socialism barbarism brings the american worker and then years hence you have selma james traveling back from london with Sylvia Federici in the United States right. for the Wages for Housework Campaign in 1972 in New York.
0: Right, right, right. They're
1: traveling across the border to Canada regularly. Glaberman's doing it. Of course, you know, CLR when he couldn't come to the United States is in Canada. And, you know, prior to that, Glaberman is kind of the conduit for those movements. These movements are constantly circulating, communicating with one another. So in the absolutely spectacular book, Uh, challenging global capitalism by Nico Pizzolatto. He outlines the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, Drum and these other figures that are traveling in Europe. But I think we can actually go back all the way to the forties and the thirties and see how these heterodox Marxian figures and black liberation uh, figures and feminist figures militants and intellectuals alike are traveling and communicating regularly around these questions and how those questions are allowing them to circulate struggles, circulate texts like the American worker, but also intervene in their own environs in more in, you know substantive ways than they would if they weren't doing that. Which mm-hmm. I think is also something that's been lost, right?
0: All right. Well, I hope you liked that episode, that uh, interview with Kevin Van Meter. Again, his book coming up is going to be called Reading Struggles, and he has an article coming out called Searching for the American Worker. This has been the Years of Lead Pod. Thank you so much for listening. Catch the rest of this interview. I'm going to either put uh, all of the rest of the interview on. Uh, Patreon, which it's a two 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 and a half hour interview, or I'm going to follow up with some of the interview in the next uh, episode with the rest of it in um, Patreon after that. So thanks again for listening. And I hope to see you next time.